politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to win back our liberties to the CR podcast here at Blaze TV. Daniel Horowitz back in the house Thursday, April the 15th, which used to be tax day. Um, but now it keeps getting pushed off because because uh, um, no one cares anymore. Because taxes are meaningless. The whole tax debate has become meaningless. Uh, as I say every year, part of the problem is that the whole concept of withholdings has really undermined what taxes are. Withholdings make it that people who pay a significant amount in taxes don't realize it, and people who don't think they do. In other words, all those that on April 15th or whenever they file, they get back a ton of money. They think, oh, well, I get, you know, it comes out of my paycheck. Yeah, but you wind up getting back more. And other people who certainly get back much less than what they put in, well, they kind of write it off. Wouldn't it be great if everyone on April 15th had to either write a check or would get a handout? And it was so it would become obvious. People would feel the pain. And this is what I've always been about. Clarifying moments. If we can't make people see the light, I want them to feel the pain. What the Republican Party and the phony conservative movement has all been about over the years is shielding us from the pain. You see what I mean? Not curing the problem. Not driving towards a legitimate meaningful goal or outcome, but just numbing our sensibilities. It's kind of like Democrats are raping the American people and the Republicans just inject them with the morphine. Sorry for the gross analogy there, but that, that's the truth. That's what it is. So the Republican Party is kind of like tax day in many respects. So we got a lot to talk about as always. We got tons of COVID stuff, tons of crime stuff. Um, we'll see which one we get to more. And there's a few other leftover items I really want to get to today as well. And one of them is the whole Supreme Court business. So Republicans are really good at playing checkers while the Democrats play chess. In other words, the Democrats always strategically think at any given moment what play gives us the greatest advantage. Right, It's obvious, and you can't blame them for wanting to do that. That's what a political party does. What the phony conservative movement does, forget about even the Republican Party because they're just subversive, but the conservative movement, they just love a talking point. Like they, they can't think more than one step in front of them. So they look at something, and they're like, hey, that's not right. Don't pack the courts. This is the new talking point. Republicans are like, you see that? Democrats want to pack the courts. We're, we're going to, how dare them? There should be nine justices on the Supreme Court. What? Huh? That's your hill to die on? The problem is that the Supreme Court is malignant, and even more so, the lower courts are terrible. It's the fact that we've given the courts the power of God, so then we go crazy as to how many gods are going to sit on it. I have a novel idea. How about... We inveigh against the premise of judicial supremacism, which is killing us, which is the single worst thing that has destroyed the country. 
And by the way, the single biggest impediment going forward for us to create the autonomy that we need and we must achieve in a minimum number of states that we want to do with our red state project, the courts are the single biggest problem, by the way. So when the Democrats come along, and by the way, their goal, their end goal is not to really get 20 people on the court. It's to scare the existing justices into further being even bigger leftists than they already are. And it's working. So Republicans always fight the wrong fight. This is a way you could take opportunities that the Democrats give us and jujitsu it into our outcomes. But Republicans and conservatives have no beliefs anymore. They don't believe in any outcomes. This is the perfect time. See, it used to be, oh, the Supreme Court said there's a right to an abortion, a right to gay marriage, a right to transgenderism, a right to illegal immigration. No, no, no. A state can't, uh, you know, have female-only sports. No, no, no. A state can't have election integrity laws. I mean, all the problems we're having from the courts. Yeah, what happens? They finally come along and show the people, wait a minute. The judiciary is not divine. It's not even fully independent. Indeed, the legislature does control the number of seats on there. More so, the legislature, as I wrote in my book, controls the subject matter jurisdiction of the courts. They could strip them of their jurisdiction. They could, as the Jeffersonians did in 1803, in retaliation to John Marshall and the Federalists, abolish entire annual sessions. They could say where they have to sit. They could actually force the Supreme Court justices to do what's called riding circuit, to uh, um, fulfill duties of sitting in on cases in various circuits. They could do anything they want. The only thing you need, as Steve King once said, is a building, not even a building, a card table, and a guy called the Chief Justice of the United States sitting in, by it. In terms of how many justices, what subject matter jurisdiction, what type of cases they take, when they meet, the enabling rules that really define the in, internal proceedings of the courts. They handed it off and devolved that to the courts and their own unelected people, but that could be yanked back at any time. In other words, it's not the procedure that the Democrats there are doing that's offensive. That's actually very constitutional. It's what they want to achieve. It's their outcome. Outcome. Because they actually have outcomes. So we should also have our own outcomes and realize that we could use it for our means. I said this during Trump's presidency. When everyone thought we were headed to taking over the courts and Democrats were fighting, I said, look, now is the time to shake hands and have a grand bargain and tell Democrats, you know what? We have the Senate and the presidency, and you're scared of losing control of the courts. You know what? We'll make a deal with you and have more consensus type of nominees in return for abolishing judicial supremacism. I mean, it's that simple. And what do I mean by judicial supremacism? It doesn't mean you don't have a court system that adjudicates individual civil and criminal cases. But what it does mean, as Lincoln said in his uh, first inaugural address, that he, 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 he um, opposed the notion that, quote, the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole of the people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions. That concept is not true. 
and Lincoln said it's not true, and he was right. And that's what we need to say. Look, you know, you want to have a case in front of the courts and say, hey, the red states have to have this sort of number of early voting days. They have to have um, transgender sports. They have to have sex change operations. They have to have this sort of immigration policy. You could sue, but if you're trying to create a cultural law, well, I mean, the other branches could push back, and indeed, they have more power to push back because courts have neither force nor will. So to me, we've always needed to de-emphasize the courts for years. Not that the other branches aren't problematic too, but that the most damage comes from the courts because because we have erroneously abided by this notion that they could permanently, unilaterally, without any hearings, public input, um, elections, there's nothing, there's nothing we can do, done. Social transformation without representation. This is the perfect time to de-emphasize it, make it a joke. I'd counter the Democrats with a bill. You know, they're saying that they have a bill to expand the number of justices to 13. I'd expand the number of justices to 50. Make it the uh, the official circus that it has already become. Look, the Waterloo of judicial supremacism was COVID fascism. This was the legitimate time where we had individual rights under assault more than ever before, where we needed a place to come cry to, courts to crawl to, and say, look, we have rights under assault. And I've always supported that notion. Not that if they want to give an opinion in that case that broadly affects a policy affecting the whole of the people, it's the final word. No, I'm consistent. It's not. The other branches could push back. But it is one avenue, not the sole and final avenue, but one avenue to protect rights. If there's legitimate standing, it's a legitimate individualized grievance. But look what happened. The courts did nothing. Yeah, I know you have these small cases where we get five justices on our side. But the lower courts are controlling everything. I warned about this for years and I was proven right. We didn't win back the courts. So we got to be stupid to try to preserve. This is what we're always doing. We're trying to preserve the current order, which is pure hell. It's not our system. It's like when we defend the current healthcare system. That's not free market. This is the problem with the strategy of conservatives. See, the left, either we would stop them from doing what they're doing, or they would do such a good job of doing it, it would break down the system, which is what we want at this point. Because the original system is gone, unfortunately. We have their system. So I would want to accelerate their collapse so we could at least have chaos and have a degree of autonomy in, in the states where we have majorities. But what's going to happen is, the, and we're seeing this already. I mean, this is what Christy Nome was saying. The biggest impediment to us doing righteous things in the red states are the courts. The only reason we don't feel the pain more often is because Republicans rarely do righteous things. But if we actually succeeded in growing our movement, our grassroots in these states, our Liberty Strike Force teams, we're seeing signs of that, of better things being accomplished in these legislatures. Guess what? They're going to go to the federal courts. But under this system, if we de-emphasize it, like, yeah, it's a joke. It's become all political. The Democrats packed it. So now we're not abiding by it. That's what Republicans should be saying. Okay, that's fine. We already have one legislature. We don't need another political legislature to supersede that. Instead, they're like, oh my God, the courts are amazing. You're going to destroy the courts. 
What are you talking about? Your own court said the freaking Civil Rights Act includes transgenderism. It is the peak GOP insanity to pick the hill to die on is the number of justices on the courts and not COVID fascism. You know, you know what's funny? You know what it reminds me of? At the same time Republicans are being vocal, like God opened the mouth of the donkey, finally they speak out against something on packing the courts, you have these Republicans yelping about Afghanistan. This is another example of Democrats, for their own reason, doing something that is certainly not objectionable to us, and we actually want it. And you have Mitch McConnell and these guys like, it's irresponsible to pull out from Afghanistan. Like, what? They'll pick, like, the two things Democrats do that could strategically help us, and they'll lay down on the tracks against it fighting it, but not COVID fascism. So this is the important thing. The courts are killing us, utterly killing us. You see this every day. A lot of these Republican legislatures, they don't do anything because they say the courts are already against us. It will just be litigated. Let the Democrats pack it. I'll tell the Democrats, hey, Biden, you could appoint 50, 5-0 Supreme Court justices tomorrow. But it's a joke. It's an utter joke. So that's it. I just wanted to get that off my chest because I felt nobody is making that point. Everyone is, is viewing this issue wrongly. But here's another issue where Republicans have killed us. Their misdirection, their lack of focus, and their even acquiescence and downright collaboration with the left on this issue has ruined in a generation of opportunities on public safety. And that's the issue of crime. We've been ta- talking about the issue of crime this week. And one of the amazing things is that when the left controls the narrative, so every time a plane crashes, you hear about it in the news. Now, if you don't have a counter-narrative, you would think if you crawled out from under a rock that planes are very unsafe and we need a, a discussion about aviation safety reform. But obviously, anyone with a brain knows that you know there's millions upon millions of flights and those rare crashes are the only ones that ever occur, are the ones you hear about, and that's life. And the more you fly, the more that tiny percentage will occur. The larger the denominator, the larger the numerator. And this is what we've been discussing with police encounters with criminals gone wrong. The point I've been making that people miss is that the more you allow criminals on the streets and the more they go undeterred, both in the justice system and then also from policing, because we punish the police, not the criminals, the more they're going to run and fight. And the more when police come across them through the course of traffic stops, they're going to turn out bad. Not because the police initially did something wrong by stopping them, but because of the criminals that are on the streets are more numerous and more violent and more souped up on drugs than ever before. So therefore, when they inevitably fight with them, you're going to have, it's a small percentage when the police make a mistake and do something wrong, but you're going to have a few more of those. But even then, they're extremely rare. More often much more often are the cases where the police react with underwhelming force and get themselves and others killed. But basically, I forgot to mention this at the time, and some of you might have seen this. I think Tucker did mention this uh, one night. I think it was late February. Skeptic Magazine, interesting magazine, where they kind of debunk widely held myths. Right, No sacred cows. They're not right or left, really. They're based in L.A. They published a survey showing that roughly half of self-described liberals or very liberal respondents in their survey 
believe that a thousand or more unarmed black men, unarmed black men, are killed by police every single year. Okay, that's the narrative you would think. And actually, approximately 35% of them believe the number was as high as 10,000 or more. But even among self-described moderates, 66% believed about 100 or more unarmed blacks are killed every year. And even 54% of self-described conservatives and very conservative respondents believe that number was about 100 or more. In reality, as you guys know, if you look at the Washington Post database on police shootings, it's really, it was just 18 in 2020 and 13 in 2019. And of course, all those mean is that according to the media, the Washington Post estimation, you didn't see a gun or a knife in the guy's hand. But it doesn't mean 18 or 13 shootings of unarmed blacks are un- unjustifiable every year. It's usually more like one, two, or three a year. Most of them were justifiable. Maybe some of them were tragic in the end that it's a shame that it came to that. But it's, you know, the guy was running and reached into his pocket. Um, They thought they had a gun. Or often what they don't talk about is you have a really big, strong guy souped up on, on PCP or something, just wailing on someone, just beating the, them to a pulp, either the partner of the cop, like another cop or a civilian, and they shot the guy. So unarmed is a loaded term. My point is, it's you know, it's it's run the gambit of, of ten to twenty cases a year, and the overwhelming majority of them are are justifiable by a mile. So basically, even if you added up all of those cases and counted all of them as legitimate, black blacks are about as likely to be shot by police as being struck by the, by lightning, because according to BJS. Um, there were about 6.5 million encounters with blacks in, I think the last year they had this report was 2018, 6.5 million. So that's about one in 300 to one in 500,000 encounters. That's about what it is to be struck by lightning. So the entire notion that this is even a problem is a complete hoax. It's a complete hoax. Doesn't exist. Okay? By the way, in Maryland, this 16-year-old boy who was talked about as a sweet honor honors boy, he, he was an honors kid, sweet boy, he did have a knife, but it's a shame it had to come to this. He was shot dead by police in an altercation at, at a school. He was white. You'll never hear about it. There won't be any rioting. There's no expectation of rioting, nor should there be. Why do we expect less from blacks? Why is that not soft bigotry of low expectations? Whites are shot more often than police, per capita, per police encounter. And again, it's not that there's too many of them. It's remarkably low. And by the way, it's gotten much low. People don't realize this. One of the biggest factors people don't realize, I don't have the trend from the 1970s to now by race, but just in general, police shootings have really gone down. Now, some of it, it went down you know, from the 90s when crime started to go down. But in general, I think it's police are much less aggressive than they've ever been. They're much more PC. You look at NYPD, the largest, by far, clearly the largest organization in America, local police organization, 
Um, they're down 90% since 1971. In 1971, you had as many as 810 police discharges, meaning it doesn't mean that they killed people, but they discharged their firearms in the streets 810 times. Um, It's steadily gone down throughout the 70s and then in the 80s. And in 2019, it was 52. 2018, it was 35. 52 and 27. So it's 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 run, I mean, well under 100 from, from 810. So if anything... Just the general sense of police, you know, being trigger happy, it's gone down over the years tremendously. The notion that this is like a growing problem or a prevalent problem in general, much less towards a particular race, is simply not true. It's blacks, especially young blacks, continuously um, account for a greater share of the violence in this country. So... You know, again, it's the more planes you fly, the more that very, very, very tiny percentage of crashes in raw numbers is going to go up, and it's a similar concept here. So anyway, the the great lie causes people to, you know, totally overstate the number of police shootings. You know, again, most conservatives thought it was 100 or more, and most liberals thought it was 1,000 or more, even 10,000. In reality, it's 10 to 20 every year, and most of them are justifiable. Now, what about the share of police shootings of unarmed people that happen to be black? Most people overstated it by a factor of two to four. Liberals believe that blacks accounted for 56 to 60% of police shootings. Moderates estimated at 46%, and even conservatives ballparked it at 38%. In reality, depending on which study you look at, which data, it's somewhere between 23 and 27%. Now, again, you might say that that is, um, um, you know, 23 to 27% that is roughly t- double their share of the population. Blacks are about 13% of the population, but blacks are per capita roughly 13 times more likely to commit homicide than whites. And generally, armed robbery, other violent crime are, you know, roughly in that ballpark. So again, as that Michigan State study showed a few years ago, actually, the police are um, more likely to shoot whites, which we all knew is true. Um, And then, of course, that Michigan State professor, he was an Asian, by the way, Asian heritage. uh, He was forced to resign after the lynch mob went after him when Heather McDonald and I began citing it, and then Tucker picked up on it. So that's where we are now. And again, the biggest proof is Ashley Babbitt. Not only is the guy not being charged, and there's no, there are no details about the investigation. No disclosure, no questions. We don't even know the name of the guy. I mean, a lot of people suspect who it is. It's going around the internet. Seen from a lot of people, but um, nothing. All I could tell you is, for this woman, Kim Potter, to be charged in Minneapolis with second-degree murder, and this guy not to be charged, there's nowhere to square that. Other than black supremacism, the two-tier justice system we have in this country. Again, I'm not even saying that the guy who shot Ashley Babbitt should be charged. I'm consistent. I'm just saying you can't trust the investigation. Hey, what was going on there? Um, I do have friends that think 
You know, most people think she was executed. I do have one friend that is an expert in firearms, and he's looked at it. He thinks the guy was just a just kind of a a loser and didn't know how to handle a firearm, and he had his trigger because there's another picture of him elsewhere with his finger on the trigger, waving the gun in a very precarious way. That he just um, he just jerked it and it just misfired. You know, and his his opinion is, you know, I thought that you shoot someone in the neck like that was targeted, and he's like, well, usually aim for the head. If you're trying to execute someone, two to the chest, one to the head, um, that it was just accidental, kind of like Kim Potter, in a, in a different way. But again, we don't even get an investigation. But if you look on the standards we apply, he would be charged by a mile if the races would have been reversed. But that's what we have in this country. So, what is the epidemic of blacks in America? Now, obviously, you shouldn't... See, what happens is, when you govern, you govern down the middle. I don't mean ideologically. I mean, you govern for the whole of the people. There's never a time when you should recognize a race, a religion, a um, an industry. What's good for the whole of the people is what you do. When you get involved in racial stuff, you actually harm the very people you intend to help. Because what is the epidemic of blacks being killed by police? Nope. Again, it's as often as being struck by lightning. And actually, if you don't run or from them or fight with them, your chances are essentially zero. The epidemic is homicide, almost exclusively at the hands of black criminals. That is the epidemic that no one wants to talk about. Again, according to CDC, they are 12.9 times more likely to be killed by homicide than whites. And this, according to CDC, homicide is the leading cause of death for blacks under the age of 35. (laughs) Talk about COVID. COVID. We want to talk about an epidemic. Black homicide of black criminals that are let out of prison, killing other black people, but, you know, whites as well. That is the single biggest thing. As I've said before, there were at least 4,000 excess homicides last year. On a given year, blacks account for 55% of homicide victims whose race was known and documented. So if you do the math, that means that because of BLM and their agenda, there were at least 2,200 excess homicides last year. But anyone who understands the geography of where those excess homicides were, meaning let's say blacks account for 55% of the general homicides, hundred, almost 100% of the homicide increase were the gang warfare, the violent street crimes. In other words, like the, crime, the, the homicides of passion, lovers, business partners, you bump someone off, that's more evenly distributed among you know different types of people. The, the, the street gang shootings are overwhelmingly more black, and that's really what increased last year. So it's likely that it's more like 3,000 or who who knows how many. So we're talking about the 15, 20 people shot by police when most of them are justified, and even the ones that turned out in the end to be either mistakes or unjustified, the very few of them were all dealing with these violent criminals that did stupid things that they shouldn't have done, even if it means that you know they shouldn't have been shot, but still... The Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund came out with data yesterday. What they did is they tallied 10 major cities. And they tallied, on the one hand, 
the decrease in percentage of police interactions. So it includes both police stops and police arrests, right? This is what the left wants. They want to abolish stops and arrests. They got what they wanted to a large degree. The aggregate of those 10 major cities showed a 48% decrease in police interactions during the nine-month period from June 1st, that's right after BLM, June 1st of last year through February of this year. And they compare that to the same period of June 1st, what is it, uh, 2019 to February 28th, um, or 29th, in that case, 2020. Okay? Arrests were down and stops were down 48%. Murder rose 56%. Minneapolis arrests were down 42%. Murders rose 64%. And what they want to do is more de-incarceration, more letting people out of prison. Chicago is really crazy. 53% decline in arrests, 65% increase in murder. Louisville, Louisville, you don't even hear this elsewhere. It's not even such a huge city. 87% increase in homicides. Milwaukee, I know, is off the charts. Again, folks, I I, I take a number of 2,200 excess black homicides last year, and it's likely a lot higher than that. But even that number is 116 times more than the number of unarmed blacks shot by police. 116 times more. Not the number of blacks killed. The number of excess blacks killed over the last number of years because of uh, BLM's agenda. I mean, the number of blacks killed was probably close to 10,000. 116 times more. But that's the focus. That's what they do on COVID too. That's what they do on every issue. This is the beauty of having control of the media and Republicans going along with it. They go along with the de-incarceration agenda. They don't say what I'm saying. Tucker is like the only one that even broaches this issue. I've been saying this for years. This is where we are. Let's go through some more cases. Let, let, Let me illustrate this a little bit for you. What typically happens in a police stop? This is what they don't understand. Where is this? Oh, these stupid ads pop up whenever I hate it. All right. It's from Fox News. Four alleged MS-13 gang members who were under investigation were taken, and these are illegal aliens, by the way, were taken into custody Wednesday after NYPD officers saw them carrying a long object and followed them to discover the suspicious-looking item was actually a woman's body wrapped in a blanket. Yeah, this is, this is a traffic stop. So they worked with HSI agents, the HSIs from ICE, um, early Wednesday, when the officers saw four men exit a building. See, this is part of policing. You see suspicious activity. They placed the funny-looking thing in the trunk of a Nissan Altima. After seeing that, well, the police followed them to Long Island, Long Island Expressway. When the NYPD officers approached the car, they smelled an odor and discovered a human body with severe trauma wrapped in a blanket in the trunk. By the way, they're talking about, you know, Traffic stops need to be done without guns. (laughs) Imagine if they would have approached them without guns. You try doing what they're doing. And by the way, just as an aside, in addition to having more criminals out on the streets than ever, we have more of other countries' criminals out on our streets than ever. So in addition to ours, because that's not enough, we've imported the entire Western Hemisphere's criminals and MS-13. By the way, there's crazy statistics out on that. Today, 
priority um, in, uh, deportations, meaning of like bad criminals. You know, Biden said, well, I, we have to deport the bad guys, not like random illegal immigrants. The priority ones are down 75%. 75% since taking office. You know what that means? Non-priority dropped 80%, but the priority dropped 75%. 30% drop in arrests of kidnappers. This is where we are. So those are also going to be out in the streets. And again, in a place like New York City, a big percentage of them are going to be foreign national criminals. They have to deal with. Where does this come from? Why is it like this? Why is this getting worse? I'll tell you why. California, this is from NBC in San Francisco, California to shut second prison as inmate population dwindles. A decade after prison crowd enforced California to realign its criminal justice system, the population in what was once the nation's largest state correctional system has shrunk to the point where officials announced Tuesday they will close one of the two inmate firefighter training centers. And, um... Basically, it's dwindled over the years because of changes to, to laws, and they don't have enough people left in them. And they're proud of it. They think that's good. They think this is great. As of last month, it had about 26,000 fewer inmates than the roughly 117 in state prisons before the pandemic. What is that, a 20% decrease? Just from the COVID jailbreak. So that's the story. The courts have also have been backed up because of the pandemic, but the flow to prisons will eventually return to normal, they say. You understand that the pandemic is being used to keep them on the streets. So on top of the general de-incarceration agenda, all you have basically you have the most violent people alive committing more violent felonies. They get arrested and they're turned back on the streets. And they don't even have their trial for the first thing. Violate their bail, violate their parole, get let out again. After a while, you have a multiplying factor that if you're a beat cop patrolling the streets in one of these major cities, you're like a thousand times more likely now than you were before, let's say five years ago, and, and, and even more, even like a year ago, to encounter a guy that's just going to jump on you. Hey, okay, um, you know, looks like you're driving erratically. Okay, you know, turn on the siren, pull you over. You are much more likely now to get into that predicament. And now because of that, they're, they're locking up the cops and they're saying blacks are the chosen people. They could do the crime and not do the time. And the cops are the criminals. Well, what do you think that's going to do to the gangsters? What sort of mentality is that going to imbue in them? Well, fight or flight. And eventually the cops are just going to let them go because there's no good outcome for them. Either they get killed or they get thrown in jail. Again, they're letting them out of jail so they could line them up with people like you and me and cops. This is where we are. But what's happening? What are the effects? My buddy Raphael Manuel of the um, Manhattan Institute, he has a column in, in the New York Post talking about how many babies are now getting killed. There's a lot of babies getting caught in the crossfire. Um, talk about Syracuse, a 55% increase in homicide. Dior Harris, an 11-month-old baby who had her life snatched from her this week in a drive-by shooting in Syracuse, where homicides are up 55%. The shooting also wounded two other girls, aged three and eight. The police have made an arrest in this case, Chavez Ocasio. In addition to murder, he's been charged with a parole violation. That he was charged with a parole violation tells us something important. This was someone the system chose to release. 
Those that make a habit of keeping up with some of the most horrific stories of criminal violence in New York, in New York and elsewhere know the pattern in its lesson. It's repeat offenders, often out on bail, probation, or parole, who are frequently behind the scourge of violence. Or consider the story of 10-year-old Aiden Wolf, police allege was beaten to death in Gotham by his mother's boyfriend, Ryan Cato, who was arrested, charged in the child's murder. Cato, it turned out, had at least one open criminal case, multiple priors for a December arrest. And this is all over the place. All over the place. So he goes through a bunch of cases where babies are being killed by repeat violent offenders. You never hear about that. And again, most of them are black. Never hear about that. But what does happen? I mentioned this last week, but um, there's some updated news. I broke the news um, because I heard directly from her. But uh, Gateway Pundit has this. Mother of four who stopped, stopped Capitol protesters from breaking windows. Rated faces 55 years in prison. Victoria White is a single mother of four daughters who volunteered with the Trump victory campaign. Helps organize Back the Blue and 9-11 memorial events. Is now an insurrectionist according to the liberal media. Um, Basically, where is this? In the FBI's own report, they note that there is a video in which an individual appears to be white, is seen arguing with other rioters who are attempting to break the glass. White could be heard yelling at the individuals attempting to break the glass, and she physically attempts to pull them away from the glass. There's actually pictures of her. I tried to stop those two people from breaking the Capitol window because when we go to see the president, we don't go there to do stuff like that. That's not patriotic. We don't do that, White told Gateway Pundit. According to the charging documents, FBI is claiming that White had attempted to grab an officer's shield. Their big smoking gun against her was actually just an attempt to protect herself from getting hit or forced into the crowd, not trying to hurt anyone. The hectic scene led to an officer striking White in the head with a metal baton. She responded by reminding the officer that he took an oath to the Constitution. The officer, White says, responded by calling her a BIT and hitting her again and again, the third strike causing her to bleed from her head. On Thursday, April 8th, her home was surrounded by federal agents. She was arrested while her daughters were home. She's charged with six offenses that combined carry a maximum sentence of 55 years in prison. Talk about a two-tier justice system. This is truly, truly sick. What is going on in this country? truly sick. There is a war on whites that is unrelenting and it's unimaginable. I don't know what you do, but folks, we need to face the music of what is going on here. We need to face the music. So that's the story with our two-tier justice system. Um, There is a lot of COVID stuff. I'll continue with tomorrow. One thing to watch is Idaho HB 339. It passed the House Some jerky Republicans voted against it, but they have super-duper majorities. That will end all local mask mandates. Um, You know, it's one of a lot of really good bills that that have passed the Idaho House um, and the Senate has not acted on. So there's there's a couple of other bills like that as well we're going to focus on. Um, One other story I just wanted to end with today because I thought it was just very instructive, and that is the Alabama Speaker. Okay, this is the state of Alabama. Now, yeah, the governor finally reluctantly ended the mask mandate, but didn't take it off localities, didn't do it on the schools. And the Speaker of the House said that there's still mandatory wearing of masks, even in the Capitol. Speaker of House Mac McCutcheon was asked by reporters if the legislature will discontinue the requirement that members, staff and visitors wear masks. 
Not at this point, he answered. We are going to continue the mask requirements for members. Members have been good about wearing their masks and social distancing. So take the most radical, destructive issue, and you have the GOP leaders in the most conservative states in the country using their parlance and policies. That jerk needs to be gotten rid of. If you have anyone in this, if anyone in the audience wants to help form our leadership team to create our strike force team in Alabama, we need someone. Again, Alabama is among the worst supermajority legislatures. Alabama, Indiana, West Virginia um, are among the worst that I have seen. Nebraska also, a couple, a couple of these other states. But then on the flip side, we have the Florida governor. Some of you might have seen the news that the um, d- d- the the guy who runs education there, whatever his name is, uh, Corcoran, um, he wrote a letter. So this is from the Department of Education. Wrote a letter telling schools it's time to open, not the end of this year, but at least next school year without masks. And I mean, this shouldn't be big news, but it is the first state. Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran, he he wrote a letter titled Planning for the 2021-2022 School Year saying the time has come because there's a lot of talk about these 23 states now, maybe it's even up to 24 that don't have a mask mandate. But again, most of the localities do and almost all of them, except for the most rural counties, they're requiring it in the schools, which is the worst aspect of this. So this is the first time that at the Department of Education level, they're actually, because typically they're encouraging it, even where there's no mandate, they say, oh, you really should be doing it. And good for, good for him, he wrote, upon reviewing the policies of those districts with mandatory face-covering policies, reviewing all districts' relevant health data, and factoring such data points as the percentage of students learning in person in the relative population of a county, the data shows us that the district's face-covering policies do not impact the spread of the virus. Broad, sweeping, mandatory face-covering policies serve no remaining good at this point in our schools. Um, it talks about the fact that it, it's harming children's learning and communication, and language, and it calls face covering a personal decision that needs to be left up to each family. So that is good news from there. That is something that we need to pressure other governors, call your governors, call your departments of education, say it's time to do like Florida. They have the data. I have a chart up in my um, piece uh, showing from Ian Miller the non-masked counties actually did better, as we're seeing everywhere. So there is a lot more news on that as well. Emily Oster, she was an advocate to open schools, but she's a big fan of opening them with masks. Guess what? She put put out there on Twitter what, what we all know is really happening. She said, this was yesterday or two days ago, I know this seems implied, but I suggest CDC message directly things like, if you are fully vaccinated, you can walk around outside unmasked, even if the other people are not always masked. But... Masks are good. There are reasons to mask to respect social norms and to make others comfortable. That's what it is now. It's the new social norm. They've run out of every excuse. This is what it boils down to. Make others feel comfortable. Destroy your body to make others feel comfortable. So we're going to, again, work on more strategies to fight that as well. Some other news we'll get into on COVID tomorrow, but I wanted to really just close the circle on the crime issue today on how the biggest epidemic is homi- to, to, to blacks in this country is homicide and crime. 
Folks, send me co- your comments, questions, and concerns to dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Make sure you sign up for our State Liberty Strike Force teams at conaction.network. We're going to come up with their, uh, a new pretty website very soon. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.